The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grandpichet. Dr. Grandpichet. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. Was, uh, not even Autism Live. It was Ask Dr. Doreen. I'm <laughs> yes. off to a great start. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm Shannon Penrod. This is Dr. Doreen Grandpichet. It's morning. Ask Dr. Doreen, uh, which is a great day, great day to be here with you guys. If you don't know Dr. Grandpichet, she's a true expert in the field of autism. She's been working with individuals on the spectrum for more than 40, 40, 40 years. You would never know it to look at her skin. Uh, <laughs> ever, uh, but that's wonderful. You should get some perk for having five. Is to is this it forty five? Twenty twenty three. Yeah, it's forty five years. Forty five. June it'll be forty five years. Okay, we need to commemorate that in some way. Um, but and in that time, she has worked with everything from very young babies up through yeah. senior citizens, yeah, and worked not only with the individuals on the spectrum, but their families to help support them to support the individual. True. One of the many things that I love about her is that she does see folks as individuals, the, the people who are on the spectrum as individuals and the people who love them as individuals, and tries to take their perspective on a regular basis which if you spend any time in the, the, the field of trying to take care of people on the spectrum, you know that can be scarce, which seems crazy. Yeah. But it, it, you know, it's not always the thing you can find easily. But yeah. she has been a wonderful advocate and ally in the autism community for all those years. And she donates this time every week to be here with all of us for you to ask questions of her, this wonderful expert and take a tour of her mind. Now we always give the disclaimer that there is no expert in this field or any other field who can give individual specific advice in this format. It's just impossible, right? It would be a disservice to the individual to even think that they could. So we do ask that you make your questions as specific as possible and understand that she's gonna give you general knowledge and tips um, and she's gonna ask you questions, things to take back to the expert who actually has eyes on the situation, which may be you or somebody else. So with those ground rules, uh, good morning. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Good we're, morning, everyone. Nice to be here. We're live right now, as you can see, on Facebook, on uh, Twitter, on YouTube, and a bunch of other sites as well. Uh, we're particularly pointing out for you that you can follow Dr. Doreen on TikTok or um, on Instagram, that she regularly answers questions there as well. Um, and then this show will be available uh, as a podcast in addition to being on our YouTube channel. And we do separate out the questions so you can search by question, by topic, mm -hmm. by everything. <coughs> so check out all of that. The, the chat is open right now. We're saying good morning to Susie, Angela. Angela, who said 45 years. Wait, and Angela is my sister-in-law. Oh, how Hi, funny. <laughs> I did not know Hi, that. Uh, oh, I recognize the name now. 45 yes. years, amazing, Dr. Doreen, with applause. Uh, okay, and Parker's got a question a little bit later, and I'm sure that there are others of you watching. If you want to write in right now, you can. Uh, and we will say hi to you or to someone in your life that you, uh, you know, 
I always think of Romper Room. I'm so old, but um, my dad was Mr. Music on Romper Room for a while. Oh, Did you I didn't know, know that? that. Um, he was the sound engineer on that show. So they would say Mr. Music, and then uh, my dad would put on the record because that's how long ago yes, that was. Yes, yes. But um, she would hold up the little mirror and she would say, I see Bobby and Jimmy. And so I always feel like I'm being Romper Room. But if, you know, we will do a birthday shout out if you have somebody in your life or something. If you have a kiddo that you want to say hello to, we will do that as well. We always have a starting topic here now on Ask Dr. Doreen mm -hmm. and be in honor of Valentine's Day, which you got the memo and you dress so beautifully. I, uh, <laughs> it's so funny. This morning I was like, I have to do something colorful today <laughs> because it's just such a difficult, it's a packed day. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and I went all black and white because yeah. I need to be that linear. Isn't that but funny? That's very, literally how I thought of it. Pretty we are coordinated. coordinated yes, yeah. it, it works. Uh, with our with our white shoes too. I'm all about the white shoes. I think <laughs> you're the one who turned me on to that. Anyway, okay. Um, so our topic today is dating and romance on the spectrum, and we have a starter question. But you guys can be writing in about this topic or any other topic. We will entertain other questions after we do this one. But the starting question is: I am 28 and on the spectrum. I want to be dating, but don't know how to start. In the past, when I asked a girl out, she said I was being creepy. Yeah. And if you actually read Parker's question, it sort of touches the same topic. Well, why don't we read Parker's yeah. question? Parker says, I meant to ask this question last week, but I was in the gym during podcast time last week. Congratulations to you on being in the gym. Uh, and thank you for taking us with you. I have a huge staring problem, especially with females. I want to stop this. I know staring is creepy. Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. And I uh, don't want to and get I'm attacked. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get attacked for staring uh, by a significant other or a father. Please help me. And when I said, isn't that funny? Uh, funny that, you know, it's very in line with what the question was. Yes. Um, so not funny at all, though. No, and it is a, it's, it's a great topic. I'm really glad we picked this topic because it's such a big issue for yeah. so many of our adolescents and adults. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's a very difficult thing to approach on its own. But here are some pointers. Okay. And, and Parker, I think, j kind of like hit the nail on the head. You, you have to... Um, let me first say why it's difficult for, for some of us. It's difficult because dating has a lot to do with, or, or actually establishing a relationship with someone else, has a lot to do with seeing the other person's perspective. And as we know, that's just a very difficult thing to do for a lot of folks on the spectrum, a lot of folks off the spectrum. Amen. Being able to see someone else's perspective is just a, a really, really valuable uh, skill and the more you can try to practice that, the better you will get at establishing a relationship. Now, you know, that's easier said than done, but it's, there are, I'm gonna give some pointers that are like easy, kind of very concrete ideas, and then some that are more abstract and general and I guess bigger issues that you can work on. And the, one of the bigger things is this, is perspective taking. Uh, being able, like in every situation, if you can, uh, and Parker, you're such an aware person, you're very, very always analyzing your own behavior and, and you're very aware of things that go on around you, I would really say start to think about how you can see things from someone else's perspective 
in every social situation that you're in. Um, any situation, let's say you're in the kitchen with your mom and she's upset about something, step away and take notes and try to just say, I wonder what's going on in her head? What is she seeing right now? What is she experiencing? Why is she upset? What has happened? Um, or let's say you go somewhere and someone is having a great time and they're laughing and having, try to step into their shoes and see things from their perspective. You see someone who's frustrated, do the same thing. Do that, the more you do that, the better you get at reading people. And when I say reading people, it's really all about inferring how they feel, what they're thinking, um, what they're experiencing at that moment. And as you get better at that, uh, it just becomes very easy or easier to have a social or intimate relationship, okay? Everything in a relationship with another person, everything has to do with being able to see the world from their perspective. So that's the big picture. Now in terms of like small, and, and actually I'm giving you like a lot of a big homework on that yeah. one, right? Which is constantly trying to do that perspective taking shift. Now the day-to-day -day stuff, Parker gives us a really good idea. Start by making a list of all the things that are good in dating or acceptable behaviors that are socially approved and behaviors that are classified as creepy or not acceptable, okay? And I'll give you some examples. Staring at someone for a long period of time where they might feel uncomfortable is something that might be classified as unacceptable. Now why? If you think for a moment, and this is another good example of perspective taking, mm -hmm. why would a girl think that you staring at them is creepy? and it goes back to perspective taking, the girl, or the boy in this case, doesn't matter, the individual can't figure out what you are thinking. They cannot figure out what's going on in your head, and so they're unable to see things from your perspective, and now it makes them uncomfortable. And they think, why is this person intruding on my privacy? Because we do all have a certain amount of privacy, even though we all look at each other. Mm -hmm. When someone stares at you, it feels like they're entering your space mm -hmm. and that you have to watch everything you're doing because now you're on a camera or something, yeah. right? So list all the things that, you that someone else might, and you can ask for help, by the way. You can ask a, a, a parent, a friend, anyone, what are some things that are socially not acceptable Staring at someone is one of them. There could be other things like getting too close physically in an environment, like if you stand too close to someone, if you touch someone when they're, they don't know you or they're not accept or, or expecting that, um, calling someone repeatedly, um, staying outside their house and waiting for them. All of these types of things are unacceptable because they have not been invited and so uh, they might scare the other person away. Things that are acceptable uh, would be things like, you know, asking someone one time, would you like to go get a drink or a coffee? Uh, calling someone one time, complimenting someone. Uh, again, one time, a lot of times what happens with folks 
on the spectrum is that they, they repeat themselves because they are seeking the acceptance or the, um, I guess they're seeking out a positive response from the individual and the individual is not giving it. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for us to realize that that should be the end of the interaction. So we persist and that persistence uh, is, can be misinterpreted as stalking. Um, so that's a very important thing. Now, you make a list, and someone else can help you with that as well. But once you've made the list, you have to start practicing. I mean, Parker, you're talking about, I have a hard time. Okay, what are some of the things you can do instead of staring at a female? Uh, is it possible for you to have a picture of a female in your wallet that you can pull out, or on your phone that you can pull out and stare at instead of staring at the person? What are some things you can do yourself to practice that on your own, not just in the situation, just practicing it so that when the situation comes up, you are a little bit more prepared and you're not doing those things that are on the creepy list. Yeah. I mean, it's really just about that. And if you think about it, um, when we're growing up, when we're teenagers, we all go through this kind of, you know, dorky phase yeah. where we all kind of do these types of things because we haven't learned that language of social interaction and we're learning it, right? We learn the things that are acceptable and rewardable and the things that are not in real life. We'll do something, I, I love that, um, the scene from, what is that movie, Swingers? Have you seen oh, that movie? Oh, yes, I love that movie. Where he uh, calls the, the girl that uh, he meets, Nikki, and yeah. he, they all, his friends tell him to wait two, two days or something, yeah. but he does the opposite, like he calls and then he calls, ends up calling like 15 times right, or something. Right. So those types of things are things we learn. Yeah. Right? It's not like we don't know them, we learn them from just actually making mistakes and realizing, oh, when I call someone excessively, they shut me down, right? When I stare at someone excessively, they might come and tell me, stop staring at me. And so you, we have to find ways to uh, break down that kind of obsession or rumination and do something else during that time so that we don't feel that way. Now that's, this is all just talking about like very, very basic superficial kind of surface-related stuff that has to do with dating, and it's very, very different than the stuff that comes with an actual development of a relationship, which is much more, because dating is really just about, an, and a lot of you guys have seen um, Love on the Spectrum, right, yeah. the series, and a lot of what goes on at that level is a series of questions that the individuals have practiced. Like, what do you like to do? What are your hobbies? Do you have siblings? Where do you live? Like, do you like animals? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There are questions to, on the, the, very much on the surface, get to know each other a little bit. Yeah. These have really not much to do with the intimate person that you are. It's kind of like the job interview. It's, it's a job interview, a perfect example, yeah. because the job interview is something you do in like a half an hour, yeah. and you never really get to know the person until yeah. they actually start working there, yeah. right? And this is the same thing. So you, know, you do a series of things in the very beginning, and it's very, very different if you, if you both after those kind of like job interview, the, you know, the initial interview, if you both feel at that point, okay, this was okay, this was kind of fun, this was acceptable, 
uh, maybe we should take it to the next level. Then the next level is to have perhaps a meal together or you know, go someplace together, enjoy an activity together. And then you're asking a little bit more intimate questions. And those questions might be something like, you know, what are your favorite activities? Why do you like doing these things? Like, uh, tell me about your family. Tell me about the things that you love in life, et cetera. And through these types of questions, you get to know each other. And, you know, if you're lucky, you find someone who also wants to spend the time with you. And you guys, that's what it's really all about. It's not, a lot of times our folks think that it's just like, it's very hard for me as an individual on the spectrum. It, it, I completely understand that, but it is hard in general to find someone who is interested in the same things at that particular moment in life and wants to spend time doing those same activities. Like it's, it's not an easy thing. It's, it's also hard for people who are not on the spectrum. Yes. And so give it time and practice these things and hopefully it'll help. I have a brilliant idea. Okay. Remind me later. Okay. I don't want to tease it here. Uh, but thank you for all of that. And sure. uh, because I think that it's super duper important. It reminds me of, there's an there's a old film now um, that is called The Story of Luke with uh, Lou Taylor Pucci. Okay. Who's in it. And, and this was made by, we actually had the filmmakers, the director and the producer on our show. And we had Lou Taylor Pucci on the show years oh, ago, okay. probably 12 years ago. And if you guys don't know him, he's a brilliant young actor, and he was very young then. Nancy and I were on with him, and uh -huh. oh, we just loved him. <laughs> and um, we just thought that he was the cat's pajamas. He plays Luke. Now he could never do it. Now it would never be allowed, but he plays Luke, who is a young man on the spectrum whose mm -hmm. mother has died, mm -hmm. and he needs to go live with relatives. Okay. And his whole routine has been thrown off. But he meets Seth Green. Okay. And Seth Green works in an office, and Seth Green is a little bit of an odd duck. Okay. And Seth Green pulls him into his office, and he says, look. And he looks through the blinds, and he says, this is the mating ritual. And a girl I walks up that. to the I water cooler, it. and a guy walks up to the water cooler, and Seth Green breaks it down moment by moment. I love it. Do you it. see how she's doing her hair? Do you see what she's doing? That means this. And breaks down all of the body language. And Luke is standing there going... I had no idea. And and they played this clip. Seth Green went on Conan O'Brien's show. Yep. They played this clip, and the audience went crazy over it. And, and Conan O'Brien said, oh, my God, I need that. Yep. I need someone to break it down for me because I didn't understand that all those things were going on. It's a brilliant little scene. But the film, I think, is worthwhile watching because Lou Taylor Pucci does a really good job of playing this young man who's on the spectrum. Yeah. He is like, he's the sweetest guy on the face of the planet. Anyway, very enjoyable. Check it out, the story of Luke. I love um, that. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I often think, wouldn't it be great if we had somebody breaking that down for people on a and regular basis? That's amazing that you say that, because you know, recently I um, did this thing on, I think, TikTok, Instagram, I don't uh -huh. know, one of these, where I've watched um, a portion of The Good Doctor, and I kind of talked about some of right. the things he does and doesn't do and so on, and I think I should do that for like some, because there's so many movies and scenes where you can actually read the person's intentions mm -hmm. by their behavior, right? Yeah. And just talking about things like, look at what she just did with her hair, or just look at the way she looks at him, or 
yes. know, those types of well, things. This is my idea, which okay. now I'm going to go All ahead right. and say, because I think, I think you should do that with The Bachelor. Oh, my God. I love right? that idea. Because I, I don't like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. I've watched it a couple of times, but it drives me crazy. But I would sit and watch you breaking down it's where it fell apart. Yes. Why? Why one guy can do this and it's okay, but another guy does it and it's creepy. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, you know, they get out of the, they, you know, if you want to learn about guys and what they do, they get out of the limousine and somebody brings a lamp, oh for heaven's God. sake, and you're like, oh my goodness, come yeah. on. <laughs> and somebody else wears a kangaroo costume and you go, seriously. Yes. Um, yes so yes. that's what I think you should be doing. Yes. See, yes. I wasn't going to tease it, that's but that's awesome. that, Doesn't that. everybody agree that Dr. Grampy Shea should break down The Bachelor? And it would be very useful totally, for everybody, totally. not just people on the spectrum, but especially people on the spectrum, to see, and you have all these dating opportunities. Yep, um, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I want to get to this question that came in from CM, and, and they did a follow-up. Because uh, this, whoo, why can't two autistic parents use their own ABA therapists to help their children? Even though the parents no longer need supports at that level for themselves, they have to help their kids. And, I, and of course, my first question was, who's saying that they can't? Yeah. Um, but wait, they, they write more. Okay. Um, they said, a woman and I backed out, I guess, of this kind of a situation because we were so unsure about helping our autistic children immediately, and, and even if our kids uh, were neurotypical. So... Uh, I, I'm guessing and cm please feel free to elaborate but i'm guessing that the aba therapist may have said there's a conflict of interest and oh. you know because because so when you have when you're a clinician you establish a patient clinician relationship usually with one person mm -hmm. now if you're doing marriage family counseling it's important to establish that with two people right but there, if, she, if the individual already has a relationship with you, um, it is hard now to establish a new relationship with a third important person, which would be your child. Reason being that if they want to interact with your child in a way that you disagree with, but they have a different therapeutic relationship going on with you, it just causes a lot of chaos. So there's a lot of good ABA, BCBAs, or people out there, and really I think it's, it would be just tidier, let's put it that way, if it was an individual that you don't know intimately. But, you know, now that we are at a point where so many people are getting their diagnosis, and maybe they're already married and they have kids, or people have their diagnosis and they get married and have kids, uh, I can see where we need to branch out into a separate thing where parents who are on the spectrum probably need some parenting support because it's a new thing in their life. Absolutely. And, and they're very highly motivated people who want, and, and it wouldn't matter whether their children were neurotypical or not, Right. the parents might need some support for parenting. No is, question about that. Is there... Anybody that's providing that at this point in the game or? You know, it's really interesting that you say that because um, so many, year, of course, all, I think most ABA agencies provide caregiver education, right? right? Which is different yeah. than what we're talking about here because 
you can have all the education you need, you want or need, but not have support. And that's a very, very different thing, right? So I uh, had a lot of education in ABA, but if I have a, an emotional situation in my life, I will still need support. And that's very, very different. So um, I don't know if there are agencies that actually provide therapeutic support or clinical intervention for families. For many, many years we did, when I was at CARD, mm -hmm. we provided marriage family counseling and all, and you know, our yeah. good friend Vince Redmond yeah. still provides that, but it was very minimally used. Yeah. And my um, theory about why most parents did not want that was that, you know, when, when there's something significant going on with your child, it's almost like you don't want help to feel better mm. because you want to feel worse than your child does. You want your child to feel better before you do type thing, mm. you know? So you, you attend to your child before yourself in most cases. And so it was very few, there were very few parents who would actually take advantage of uh, therapy for themselves from someone who's an expert clinician like Vince. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, to go back to this question, if you as the parents are no longer receiving services from that individual and you can really, really clear the lines, draw the lines and say, this is not the clinician who is dealing with us, this is a clinician we know and love and trust and we, Th th this clinician is now only working with our child, then it should be possible to avoid those conflicts, but you just need to make sure of that. But you could, uh, you could do the flip though too and say, we want, a, we want a therapist to come in and only deal with Absolutely. us parenting. Absolutely. Because I think that's what CM Absolutely. is saying, that's the direction that I need. Well, the, the, she, the CM is also saying the parents no longer need support at that level for themselves. For themselves, but they, I think, CM, correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying you need it as a parent. I, I did. Of I, course. You know, and I'm not on the spectrum, and I needed support. Of I can course. only imagine, uh, you know, I, I'm going uh, to use my child as an example, that my son doesn't need any support right now, but yeah. if he were going to parent right now, I think he would oh. not only need some support, but he would need maybe some extra support. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely, Because yes. there would be things that would be difficult for him, um, so, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think we're going to see more of this. Yeah. And you know what? I'm excited that we're going to see more of that. Yeah. Because yeah. we're seeing more people get access to no, you're right. their diagnosis and, and their parents. Yes. As it should be. As it very much should be. Uh, okay. Okay. So I want to get to a question that uh, somebody wrote in. My son diagnosed with ASD at two and a half years old with a CARS to ST score 38 as moderate to severe and an IQ is 78. Mm -hmm. Last week, during reevaluation after one and a half years of intensive ABA therapy, his scar CARS score came down to a 22 now, Amazing. which is way below the cutoff score. And with a verbal IQ of 100, a nonverbal IQ of 118, and visual motor integration IQ of 123. His pediatrician said in her practice she has never seen such progress for any kid diagnosed with ASD. 
but his developmental psychiatrist still kept the diagnosis of ASD, but at level one now. Uh, we'll continue the therapy, but do you think he has chances to recover in the future? He will be five in July of 2023. I kind of just want to get up and run around the set and like, you know, throw yeah. confetti and, and jump up and down. Exactly. So, yes, that's fabulous news. Congratulations, of course. That's wonderful. Now, so there are usually, um, I guess I'm trying to think, a few different areas of functioning that I pay attention to when I'm looking at recovery. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is IQ. And uh, because, you know, I'm not one of those people that thinks that IQ uh, defines the diagnosis, not at all. In fact, I feel like the diagnosis affects IQ because of the language deficits that we have. Uh, and we talked about that extensively exactly. last I've, week. I've often talked about yeah. that. And I think that it has a lot to do with being able to understand those tests and so on. And I love the fact that your child has now established not just a, I think it's a verbal IQ of 100, which is normal. That's the normal amount, mm -hmm. uh, number a nonverbal IQ of 118, which is amazing. And VMI is important as well at 123, but the, the nonverbal IQ of 118 and the IQ, verbal IQ of 100 is fabulous. Now remember another, it becomes a little concerning if there's a huge discrepancy between nonverbal and verbal. In your case, it's still pretty good. So IQ, you're good, you're done with that. Let's put that aside for a moment. Uh, you need to do testing that involves language, just language testing, speech and language. So I, the age of the child will be five. So this, I'm not sure if the self. So two tests that are very useful in determining appropriate language skills are the TOLD, which I, I, you can give right now, and the self, which is spelled C-E-L-F. And the self, might, your child might be too young. I'm not sure, I think the self might start at five, I don't remember now. And um, that is a very difficult language test and it's very abstract. And when my kids would score well on the self, I knew that there was nothing at all to worry about in terms of language. If you do language testing and your child has holes in the testing, like in language testing it's not just the score but they'll tell you like, the child is delayed in this area, that area, strong in this area, et cetera. And that just helps you identify things that can have to be continued to work on, right? Things that you will still need to teach. So language testing, um, cognitive in, sen in the sense of executive functions, right? So you've done IQ, which is cognitive testing, but you need executive functioning testing, and there's a lot of tests that you can do for that. Um, and I think, uh, and then social. Social is really, really important in this uh, spectrum, of course. And every psychologist, or are you doing this with a pediatrician? And then you have a developmental psychiatrist. I want to talk about that in a minute. But uh, um, you can have a pediatrician who's, if you have a pediatrician who administered IQ testing, then that person is a developmental pediatrician. and. That means that they definitely will also have access to or can refer you to get these other tests done. But I, when I 
classify a child as recovered, I do all of those, or I will look at all of those tests. So I want to make sure there's uh, average IQ, but I also want to make sure there's really high level of language functioning and social functioning and executive functioning on its own. All of that. And then I really want to just like, you have such a young child, this is amazing that he's just five, or in July will be five, it's incredible. Obviously, you want to make sure you push right now on the social so that your child is um, ready or will excel in school. Uh, because I don't care how high your numbers are, if you're not excelling or do, you know, I guess, uh, managing in your social, in your normal environment, and for a five-year-old that would be school and home, um, then you still have issues, right? So you need to take care of that and make sure all of those things happen. Now, your psychiatrist who insists on maintaining the diagnosis also did not give you an appropriate diagnosis. When you receive a diagnosis, there are two numbers associated with <laughs> the severity. This kind of drives me nuts because everybody has just decided we're just going to do one number. I don't know where that came from. But there are two numbers associated. One, the one that you received, means requires the least amount of support. There's three numbers across two domains. The three numbers, one is least amount of support, two is some support, and three is significant support, okay? And that generally means if you receive a number three, your child is struggling a lot in that particular area. There are two areas. The first area is social communication. The second area is that whole area of repetitive, stereotypical, and sensory and medical issues, all kind of put into that whole domain. Now, I don't know what it means when you get one number because I don't know if that one applies to the first area or the second area. Yeah. And whenever someone does that kind of diagnosis, it tells me that they're not a diagnostician, okay? So if you, I, I, and there are people out there who strongly believe that no matter how well your child is doing, they will never lose their diagnosis. The autism will never go away. And that's totally fine. But for you as a parent, I think it's important, and especially if you're asking the question, do you think he has a chance to recover? Let's talk of, uh, for a moment about what that actually means. Yes, because Taryn also asked what are the early indicators, some of which you've addressed. Yeah. So what are, I, I don't shy away from the word recover. I know that it has different meanings for different people. But to me as a diagnostician, Something, what, what it means to no longer have a diagnosis is simply that. It means that if someone met the individual today, knew nothing about their history, and wanted to diagnose them, they would not fit in the classification of that diagnosis. For ASD, it's very straightforward. You have to have a number of symptoms in that first domain and a number of symptoms in that second domain. And unless you have that, you're not gonna fit the diagnosis. Yeah. Now, you could have had the diagnosis when you were three, but when I do an evaluation of someone, let's say they're five or 10 or 17 or whatever it is, and I get a lot of adults requesting this now, yeah. I'm not asking about how they were at three. 
They could have had a lot of symptoms. They could have had a diagnosis at three. I'm asking about what's happening now in their life. Do they qualify for this? It's kind of like if you go in to ask, you know, say, I feel like I have clinical depression, major depressive disorder, MDD. I'm not going to ask you how you were yesterday or six months ago or two years ago. I'm going to ask you about now. Yeah. And right now, if your child doesn't have those symptoms, then they lo no longer have the diagnosis of ASD. They might have other diagnoses. They might have mixed receptive expressive disorder. They might have a social type of disorder. They might have other types of things that are less uh, pervasive than ASD. But that's how I look at it, and, and yes, if I was to guess when a child has this level of fat, rapid growth in a period of a year and a half um, in their IQ, and if your child, which I would assume given his IQ score, has uh, also developed pretty significantly in the area of language, then teaching social behavior just follows. And yes, I would say your child has a very, very good chance of losing their diagnosis, i.e. being recovered. Yeah. So um, I think that you definitely should go perhaps see someone who doesn't have a history of your child and ask them to evaluate for there the diagnosis. Can. Okay, there's so much I want to get into. Please. Okay. So first of all, I asked somebody uh, once uh, recently about, uh, because they were, a diagnostician and I was saying why do we keep hearing this all the time with one number yeah and their take on it was oh the parent is so overwhelmed when I'm giving them the information that I don't get into all the domains but I only give one number when it's the same number in both categories okay I feel like that's a disservice to the parent because it's it not is. giving them the whole story it is because let me just explain so let's just talk about Let's say someone has a um, extremely limited in their language, mm -hmm. like has non-vocal. Mm -hmm. They have absolutely no vocalization, no ability to communicate through language, but they don't have any uh, ritualistic self-stimulatory or sensory issues yeah. at all. That's yeah. completely possible, right? Yeah. And that person's numbers would be a three-one. Yeah. Okay, there would be a three. They would need significant support in the area of language, yeah. but a one when it comes to ritualistic repetitive yeah. stereotypies. Now, and how you treated it would be different, a, right? A, a, completely yeah. different in, in <coughs> so many different ways. Now, if you have someone who has a, a lot of language, mm -hmm. is doing extremely well in the area of language, but they have a lot of obsessive types of behaviors that are very, very ritualistic, yes. then that person would be a 1-3, which yes. is the exact opposite, right? Yeah. Now, it's, it's something to say, oh, sure, if someone is 2-2 two, two or 1, it's, it's very different. These are very different things. Yeah. They have nothing to do with each other, and I've had all kinds of patients. And I think it's super important because if I'm going to, uh, you know, assume that someone is high functioning in the area of language and social communication, I'm going to treat that person very differently yeah. than if I know it's someone who has issues in stereotypies or the sensory input areas. For sure. So the other thing I want to talk about uh, briefly, although I, I know, uh, okay, so there are, there are all these different camps about the recovered thing. 
And there are people who say, well, you know, your brain is wired a certain way and it doesn't matter what yes. happens, what you learn, if you're always yes. going to have an autistic brain. One of the ways that I have come to make peace with it um, is that, that the diagnosis is an autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. And it specifies that you have to have these symptoms to such a degree that it prevents you from leading your life right, right. without... So, so okay, right? and let's talk about that for a minute. So that's yeah. why I think it matters, right? Because, um, it, you know, that whole thing that I always, that I often talk about, anything, and that, in that big book, the DSM, yeah. anything that is in that book, it's not, it's lots of different chapters, right, and lots yeah. of different sections. In that section of ASD, it just talks about these are the symptoms of ASD. Just like it's a different section, you'd be looking at major depressive disorder or yeah. uh, obsessive compulsive or I don't know, whatever, anything else, right? Alcoholic dependency or yeah. whatever it is in that book. It just defines that section. The, there's a whole different section in the beginning of the book that talks about what it means to be in this book, mm -hmm. what it means to be classified as a disorder right? Because yeah. the, the book is mental disorders. And what does that mean? That means that you would not be functioning in one of your environments in an adaptive manner. That means that, and this is very important, guys, like I could be sad, I could be mm -hmm. depressed, but if I'm getting up in the morning, going to work, mm -hmm. and functioning, and coming home, and uh, in my home life, things are fine, and, and like people realize that I'm generally sad, but I'm managing, and you know I'm taking care of my family, and so on and so forth. I would not; it just doesn't classify as a disorder, so I wouldn't get the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. I just wouldn't. Uh, if I always give the example of alcohol uh, addiction and dependency. If I am drinking a bottle of scotch a night, it doesn't matter if I get up and go to work and if, if I'm functioning okay at work, if I've never had a, a DUI, if my family doesn't. If I, as long as you are functioning fine, not excellently, but you're managing, then it's not classified as a disorder, right? right. And that's super important because yeah. we're not saying that you know, you're not if I remove someone's diagnosis, that doesn't mean that they're not going to struggle in some area of life. We all struggle. Here's the news. Yeah. <laughs> we all struggle in some yeah. area of life. Even the most incredible you know, psychologists or psychiatrists or scientists or brilliant people in yeah. this world, everyone struggles with one thing or another. That's the whole purpose of life is to learn and overcome those struggles. So, um, yeah, that's a very important thing, Shannon. It's like yeah. if it's not enough, if it's not yeah. enough to disrupt your life, yeah. it's not a it's so disorder. So here's my question yes. of you and of the entire community. Do we have room to have autism and autism spectrum disorder? Can we make room for there to be autism without a disorder? You know, I... You think, give me an example that applies well, to any other disorder. How about schizophrenia? 
How well, about depression? How, it just well, doesn't but you exist. just gave an example uh, that you can be sad but not have, uh, you know. And uh, as someone who has had a major depressive disorder in my life, where my life fell apart and I couldn't totally. leave my house and I couldn't drive, you know. And now I'm not that. Yes. So how, you know? But that doesn't mean that I don't ever have depression or that correct. I'm not inclined correct. to that. Correct. Correct. But. Um, but I don't refer to myself as having a major depressive disorder yes. on a day-to-day -day basis. So and the way that I, the only way to answer your question that I could see this is, in I guess in some ways to say if it's like dormant or active. You well, and I'm this saying? is how some doctors now, when um, there was the little girl, what was her name that was in. Uh, the state that uh, when you first started skills and you gave that to them for a year, a year for free and they were able to get her to the point where she no longer qualified right, for the diagnosis. Right, right, I can't right. think what her name. Maddie. Yes. Maddie. Yes, yes. And you know how her doctor classified it? That she was autistic but in remission. Yes, yes. And I was like, remission? Another R word that we get to add to this? <laughs> that's like, oh, are you kidding me? That's controversial? in remission because yeah. the medical field doesn't have a diagnosis for when you have you you have an autistic brain and you have the disorder mm -hmm. and now you no longer cla um, qualify yep. for the disorder yep. but your brain is still wired different now the community has started calling that neurodiverse which is totally fine but i f strongly feel like we're all neurodiverse and I, I agree. I wanna, I wanna just go for a moment, kind of on the record with that one, because think of the repercussions over the course of the individual's lifetime. Okay, having that diagnosis may, and we're talking now about someone who is functioning pretty much the same as someone who never got the diagnosis. Very close. They have certain struggles, right? but that other person who never got the diagnosis may have other struggles, yeah. right? This person may have issues with social behavior and reading other people's intentions. That other person may have struggles with anxiety or depression, okay? So each of them have different struggles and they're going through life. This person has this dormant autism diagnosis, let's put it that way, or in remission or whatever it is. So in certain ways, it w might uh, impact them in a positive way, and in certain ways it might impact them in a negative way. Mm -hmm. And here are some examples. Positive ways, okay, maybe they're applying to college or university or something, and uh, the university is like, wow, this is someone who has overcome a very significant disorder, and that means we should try to get them in here. Negative way, what happens with their health insurance now? Yeah. This is something that's on their health insurance forever. Yeah. What happens with their children? Are their children going to be scrutinized in a different way? I mean, there are a lot of different things. What happens when they actually uh, meet someone and want to get married? Is the individual now going to be concerned about the genetic passing on? Of There are so many repercussions yeah. to this. It's a bigger issue than we just feel uncomfortable with saying recovered. You know what I mean? And I have no feeling about it either way. But what I'm saying is that it is important to think about the repercussions over the course of the individual's yes. lifetime yes. because we never do. You know, when the DSM changed and has changed multiple times, right, and we removed the diagnosis of Asperger's from the whole thing, right? Just yeah. removed it. 
Yeah. All those people were kind of in limbo for a very long yeah. time. And I don't think we should go back and mess with the diagnosis again because it just no. starts to cause these types of, uh, you know, problems. I don't want to mess with the diagnosis. I think what I see and what I want is for us to all make room. I think that so many of my friends that are on the spectrum, and I see this in my son, that he and, and other people look at it and go, well, my brain wor works differently than yours does. Yes. Which is also true of you and I. Yes. I watch how your brain works, yes. and it does not work the way mine does. Of and, course. And Jem's brain works in another way. And, but that it's not a disorder for any of us, no. but it's an acknowledgement of the way your brain works is just fine. Yeah. I would never want to change that. But, but I feel like that's real estate that isn't owned yet by the autism community, that being able well, to say and have the whole world accept, well, this is the way my brain works and I can make it, make it function in your world just fine, but, but you know, w there's not a word for it. Okay. But I also disagree with that, and okay. I'll tell you why. Right. And I just want to say, like Matthew Arnold wrote in and said, universities don't go, wow, this person has gone through a significant bar barrier. We should get them in here. You're also right, Matthew. Yeah. Some universities will say, I'm never letting this person in because they had a diagnosis in the past. There, there's all signs yeah, of we this. We still see the discrimination. There's on, a lot of discrimination, yes. right. So, But I want to go back to what you said, Shannon, which is, if we were to say the autistic brain works in a particular way, what we would be saying is it's all the same. And let me tell mm. you, two individuals on a spectrum don't think the same. That's They're true. very different, very, very different. I just met a child the other day whose uh, math skills are beyond anything I've ever just, you know, and I continue to, even after 45 years, I still meet kids who completely shock me yeah. right and I'm like wow but then I, I'll meet another child who absolutely struggles with numbers and yes. they're on the spectrum and I'll yeah. meet someone who is incredibly good at memorizing facts and another person who absolutely cannot memorize facts but is really good at formulas and so individuals on the spectrum, we know this. That's why we call it a spectrum. Yes. There is no one way. They all d function differently. One thing I will say is that I think one of the things that over time I was very, very happy that the latest, which, was still, which is still many years ago, diagnostic manual, um, started to acknowledge the sensory input yeah. differences of individuals on the spectrum. And again, that also does not cover all it's yeah. not everyone but there is a, a percentage of individuals on the on the spectrum who struggle with sensory input and that does make life a lot harder I'm not folks I just want to be very clear I'm not saying in any by any means that life is easy for someone who has been diagnosed what I am saying is that there are many people who have had other struggles in life who are not on the spectrum. Yeah. And I, I think that it is important to kind of realize that, you know, once autistic doesn't mean you will always struggle with the same things. Right. You and I know individuals who've recovered. Yes. And they are struggling, but yes. definitely not struggling with the same stuff Absolutely. as when they were, 
diagnosed. Absolutely. You know, so. Absolutely. I love debating. Uh, Beck's mama says, how many hours of ABA should a four-year-old get? I mean, after school ABA. And good morning, Michelle. We got a bunch of people right. A lot of questions. Um, uh, so glad to have you here. Uh, and yes, and, and you and want me to be on Instagram. I see that. Traven's on it. Thanks, uh, Mama. I got to tell you, um, that is a question I can't answer because it differs, uh, as we just talked about, it has a lot to do with the functioning level of the child. Um, there are children who are very, very high functioning and they're not going to need an intensive 40 hour a week type of program. There are other kids who are very, very severely affected by autism and they would benefit from all awake hours. So it really depends on the functioning level. Um, generally speaking, four-year-olds are, sh you know, the diagnosis usually happens around three-ish. And um, you, I guess 90% of the time when I see a four-year-old, they have enough struggles, enough areas that they need to work on that I will recommend an early intensive uh, program, which means 40 hours a week. Um, if it's after school, um, and also, by the way, they said after school ABA. Yeah. So I don't know what a school ABA is. Um, ABA, by definition, is done one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been any kind of successful study showing that ABA can be done with groups, like in a classroom. Don't get me wrong. ABA works in all settings and it can be done with groups. When we're talking about intensive early intervention for a four-year-old to learn skills, it's all one-on-one. -on -one. Right. So perhaps in school they're doing that. I don't know. I doubt it. Um, Very few schools. Yeah. Are. But so my perspective on ABA is the one-on-one -on -one intensive work that needs to be done is pretty intensive at age four. It's about 25 to 40 hours a week. Um, a lot of parents, and going to school at four is a little early anyway, a lot of parents will hold their children, children back so that the child has all day to learn. Yeah. It's kind of like, look at it as intensive therapy, intensive tutoring. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, if you're only doing ABA after school, then I would also do ABA on the weekends. Here's my thing with that, and I love the responsibility of the question, how you answered it as, you know, as a clinician and saying it's different for every child. Yes. But I, I also think that there's an element to this that doesn't get said to parents, which is that insurance is only going to win, uh, uh, fund an intensive program uh, during a few years of your child's life. And if yes. you, so 99% of the four-year-olds because it takes so long to get a diagnosis right now and it takes so long to get services that I don't know of very many four-year-olds, in my experience, which is not yours, yes. clearly. I have never seen a parent with a four-year-old who couldn't benefit. Like I would even argue that if you took a totally typically developing four-year-old, that you could put them in a 40-hour intensive ABA program and they would benefit from it. 100%. And if it was done right. No right? question if you, about if it. If you could get that. So, uh, but I think the piece that doesn't get said to parents is if you don't do it intensively now and if you, if you don't fight to get it intensively now, you're never going to get it at four. Yeah, because I think it's important for parents to realize that there's this mystical th term 
that is extremely hard to define when it comes to payers, insurance companies, and it's called medical necessity. Mm -hmm. And medical necessity, there's a whole thing called MNC, which is medical necess medically necessary criteria. And let me tell you, for 15 years, I couldn't figure out what that definition actually is, but it essentially says if something is not medically necessary, your insurance company shouldn't pay for it. So that is, is like the difference of, let's say, surgery versus plastic surgery, right? Yeah. And they view ABA as part of it being absolutely medically necessary, and that's the part that has to do with uh, dealing with the symptoms of autism uh, in a way that getting the person to a way that is functional, right? Not necessarily adaptive, thriving, normal, uh, average, or any of those types of things. So let's say I teach my child, I use ABA to teach my child to ask to go to the bathroom in the classroom. That, in some payers, will consider that to be sufficient and not necessary to teach the child how to take care of themselves in other areas or other grooming areas. It's a very weird line. I was never really, we were never able to clarify what it actually means, but basically that is the pushback. And at age four, they're very open and they will allow you to do a lot more than they would when your child is eight. So when your child is four, uh, it's pretty recommended to take advantage of that time that you're gonna get an, an organization, a payer to pay for it and do as much as you possibly can because your child's gonna benefit from it as long as it's, it's broad, right? And getting your child literally to thrive in those areas where the, they were uh, struggling earlier. Uh, because let me tell you, five, six, the older they get, the harder it gets because there's not enough science or literature published to show that individuals at age 10, for instance, can overcome the diagnosis. There's tons and tons of literature that shows, doesn't matter what age you are, you could be 20, you will benefit from ABA, you will learn from ABA, you don't need a diagnosis of autism, everyone will benefit from ABA. But whether or not it is crucial enough, whether or not it is going to make a life or death difference in your life at age 10 or 15, hasn't been proven yet. Yeah. All the literature on intensive therapy, which means 25 to 40 hours, has to do with children below the age of seven or eight. So that's important. We're running out of time, but there's so many things I want to say. But Ev Evie said hi to you, said it's oh, so good to see you. It's Evie. Um, it's uh, Dr. So, Evelyn. Yes, exactly. Love to, love uh, to see her name. Yes. Uh, but I, but I, I think it's important that, because she wrote back in and said that he is in a school where he's getting some ABA in school and that she's on the waiting list to get ABA. Um, he struggles with speech and tends to hum. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's really important right now, there's a lot of people who find themselves with a four-year-old on a waiting list. And, I, and we've yeah. said this before on the show that uh, the phrase that I'm telling people to say is go to your insurance company and tell them, especially if it's been, I don't know what the magic number is, 60 or 90 days that you've been on the waiting list, but you need to call your insurance company and say that you want to talk to someone about denial of access to care. That there's a very real issue right now that there aren't enough therapists and your provider 
um, your insurance company contracts with certain providers. And if you've been on a waiting list, I just talked to somebody the other day who's been on a waiting list for a year with a four-year-old in California. This is unconscionable. Yeah. Unconscionable. But use the phrase denial of access to care because what will happen is that they will start a single case agreement with someone who is out of network and because and, you need to put pressure on them. Yes, on and, the payer. And, and on the payer to, to get you services started as soon as possible and, and ask for, I believe, now clinicians can tell you whatever they're going to tell you, but I'm going to say to you, go in and, especially the four-year-old, ask for as many hours as you can start because every time you go in for a reauthorization, they're going to try to pull hours away from you. So if you start at 30, you're going to go in for the reauthorization and they're going to tell you now you qualify for 20. So push for 40 in the beginning so that you have more real estate to bargain with. Yes. That's my advice for that. I do want to get to uh, Fortune Fortune says, Hi, ladies, my daughter is starting B12 shots. I'm nervous about it. She's nonverbal. What is the benefit as it relates to ABA and her speech? Thank you. You know, that's a, uh, it's a really good question. So the B12 shots may have some positive effect on your child. It has really, it's very, very different than the world that we're talking about here. And that you should be doing, I assume you are doing, with a functional medicine mm -hmm. physician. Um, and you'll know right away if that is going to benefit your child. Just like a lot of other biomedical interventions, uh, not just the B12 shots, but like dietary interventions in particular, I have seen a lot of growth in the ABA with some children when they receive the appropriate biomedical intervention. And it just makes sense. It's like if a child isn't sleeping and you give them something that's going to improve their sleep, they're going to learn better. If a child has gastrointestinal inflammation and you treat that and they feel better, they're going to learn better. If your child is not detoxing well enough and you do the B12 shots or anything else for detox and they feel better, their head is and their mind is clearer and they're paying attention better, they're going to learn better. And that's a really big, big thing that I've always tried to talk about because there's a real big divide in this field with ABA professionals and physician, uh, medical professionals, and there shouldn't be because you have to treat the whole child. You have to, to make sure the child is feeling good if you're going to bombard them with massive amounts of teaching. And, and that's just a really important thing. I actually, as you know, Shan, I made a uh, contribution to the Association for Behavior Analysis, ABAI, um, which is kind of the mothership of all ABA organizations. And they uh, do a conference every year in May, which is a massive conference. And there's like thousands of behavior analysts that go to this conference. And every year there's one talk that is from my endowment, which is a medical doctor, a physician, who will go in and talk about the biomedical issues related to autism. And the reason I did that is because I feel like BCBAs in general need to learn about all the bi uh, biomedical yeah. interventions that are going on, like B12, but there's so many other things that people are doing. And it's important because some of these interventions really change your child. And your child is now functioning better and able to pay attention. And it influences how fast they benefit from ABA. I want to just go back to Beck's mama because she said, so should I pull him out of the special education program? I, you know, I want to hear what you have to say, but I would be very careful because, you know, it's going to be very hard to get a 40-hour program That's right now. That's what I was now. going to say. I and was going to say, do not pull him out. 
unless you have something lined up that's going to be one-on-one. -on -one. It's just taking him from an educational setting to a more uh, beneficial educational setting, which is one person teaching your yeah. child a, a program that is just made for him. If you can get that going, great, yeah. pull him out. If you can't, then it's more important to keep his mind active and busy until you can give him a one-to-one -one program. But make sure you have it and they're not blowing smoke at you before yeah. you you know, jump out of the frying pan. All right, we're out of time, but this yeah. is so much fast. fun. It, it did so go fast. so fast. All right, you guys, uh, don't forget, we're back tomorrow. You know what we have tomorrow? We have an expert who has a, a scuba diving program with folks on the Ooh, spectrum. Isn't that interesting? That is amazing. Uh, and then on Thursday, we have Let's Talk All the Things. Rachel Bird is going to be back here with me. She's got new recipes for you guys and a fun craft that we're going to do during the show to help us with, you know, and you can do this with your child, a craft with your child to help you to get organized because we're all drowning in the paperwork, yep. right? So we're going to do that. And then don't forget stories from the spectrum on Friday. And then on Monday, we have something really different on Monday. Instead of our parent to parent, on Monday, we have the Just Two Dads from the podcast oh, Just Two Dads. Monday. That's right. And I believe that you're going to try to be here I'm with us. I'm going to try my best to be here. Uh, I love and that. And so that's going to be live with the two dads. And Dr. Doreen, you're not going to want to miss that. Don't forget that we have the Autism Network Podcastathon yes. that is coming up in April. We are going to attempt to go live on at 3 p.m. on April 4th, and we are going to attempt to stay live nonstop for 44 hours. Yes, 44 hours. Uh, we won't be doing that alone, obviously. We're partnering with a lot of different charities and other uh, podcasts and bloggers uh, to be able to stay on the air for 44 hours live. Uh, but we hope that it's going to be an information and inspiration extravaganza for you, all free for you guys. So we're looking forward to having you guys here with us. Mark it on your calendar. There will be an hour for everyone yes. and an hour for everything. So all of that coming, but thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being Always as brilliant as you thank are you. and giving as you are. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye, everyone. Don't forget, you can watch Ask Dr. Doreen live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time. We hope to see you there.